a few years ago, during the times that I came to teach here at IMS, I would often pay a visit to my friend Venerable Mahagosananda, who at that time was living in a Cambodian temple and not not too far from here. Some of you may know him, and some of you may know about him. His name, Mahagosananda, translates like this. Maha means great, and Gosananda means sound of bliss. So the great sound of bliss. And he's fondly uh, called Maha most of the time. He's from Cambodia and is considered the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside, the villages, and the refugee camps during the Vietnam War. He's 94 years old now, and he's been a monk for 80 years, since he was 14. Venerable Gosananda is an incredibly glowing and light, light in the sense of the energy that he emanates, an incredibly glowing and light human being. He feels to me like one of the purest, one of the lightest beings that I've ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, a being with a truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. Some years ago, I had the great honor of teaching a three-day retreat with Venerable Mahagosananda in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, a sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. We didn't know each other very well, and we hadn't seen each other for about a year. So I didn't know if he would remember me. And being such an old man, there are things that he doesn't remember anymore. So when I went into his room and met with him, I recalled to him the last time we had met and asked him if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And I burst out laughing and I said, It must be quite a nose. (laughs) And he very directly and very sweetly responded, it's a good nose. (laughs) On a particular visit to him here in Massachusetts, not too long after the Colorado retreat, during a three-month retreat, actually, that I was teaching here, I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who in fact calls me (laughs) Mum. And I asked him at one point, why do you call me Mum when you're so much older than I am? 
And his response was, we have all been each other's mother at some point, and so you're mom. So that day, mom and grandfather sat together and drank tea, and we laughed a little bit. We talked a little history about Venerable's life, and we talked about the three-month retreat, the three-month retreat that I was teaching, and how everyone was so diligently practicing. And mostly we talked Dhamma. That's what Venerable Mahagosan likes to talk most. Being with Venerable is a most precious gift, a gift that opens and lightens the mind, the heart, a gift he very selflessly offers through his being, or maybe more accurately, a gift he offers through simply being. And I found it quite amazing and surprising when I've been with him and afterwards. My heart feels like it fills up my whole body, my whole being, and then goes on outward. And a feeling which then continues on and on beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, that visit with Venerable, to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha filled the back of my car with big 25-pound or 50-pound bags of Thai rice, big tins of jasmine tea, and big many-pound bags of sugar for me to take back for the three-month yogis. They wanted to offer support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. This evening I would like to explore two particular qualities of mind, of heart, with you. These qualities, along with mindfulness, holding a special place and a special opportunity for all of us. For some of us, as we take our practice out of the retreat setting, into the world of our daily lives. For others of you, as you continue to practice over these next five weeks, practice in the retreat setting, this great gift of retreat practice. The two particular qualities of heart and mind that we'll explore together this evening are generosity and compassion. And in relationship to this evening's talk, what I very often through the talk call compassionate generosity. Over 2,500 years ago, it was out of a boundless depth of profound generosity of heart that Gautama Buddha offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering 
directly out of his own experience. He offered this out of the boundless heart of compassion and generosity. And it's because of this great heart of the Buddha, the great heart of compassion and generosity, that in fact we're sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a very recent story about Venerable Mahagosananda to a very old story, an ancient Buddhist legend that is a tale of generosity and compassion with a a substantial sprinkle of samvega thrown in. Samvega being the Pali word uh, that translates as a strong sense of urgency to awaken. It's said that in this legend that many, many maha kalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to a small village called Amaravati in India and to offer an evening of public talks revealing his dharma. The villagers were very, very excited and deeply honored to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara. They decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk along through their village and then cover it with a very fine piece of cloth. In the forest just outside this village of Amravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and much moral vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later life was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha. Sumedha's parents were wealthy Brahmins, and they had died just a few years before this story takes place leaving him with seven generations of accumulated wealth, great lots and lots and lots of property. It's said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth. Yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. And there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world. So should I remain idle? No, he said. I will leave this sheltered life and become an ascetic and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king and he gave all of his money to the poor and he entered into the forest for the life with the life of a hermit. He ate wild fruit, he wore clothes of bark, and he let his hair grow long and matted. He practiced energetically, whether standing, sitting, or lying down. And within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things. 
He wore a bright wisdom, which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days, blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day that Dipankara Buddha's visit was about to happen in this village of Amravati, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and the activity in the village. And it's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement, he said. Why are you working in the midday sun? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha spoke to the workman. Don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village, the workman responded. Well, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it to even hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet a fully realized one. And so he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman with the road. And he picked a particularly swampy stretch of low ground to fill. He worked with his heart and his mind filled with light, filled with joy, repeating over and over again to himself, a Buddha, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish the task that he took on, he heard this exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching. Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending from the Buddha Dipankara and a great soft golden glow surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft, wet ground that he hadn't yet finished filling in. And then he lay down upon it. And he loosened and spread his long, matted hair, making a passage of himself for the Buddha bunker to walk on so he didn't have to walk in the mud. Then he thought, like the Buddha Tapankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined, he thought. Despite all the difficulties, all the danger, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived right at that very spot. And he looked down at the hermit Sumedha. And he knew, this hermit has made the resolution to be a Buddha. He'll be successful. In many mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he'll become a fully realized one.
an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, lay women, men, and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will be, will fulfill his great vow. He'll be a Buddha named Gautama. And when he becomes a young man, he'll see, he'll see these, the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of milk rice with renewed strength and energy. He'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he'll attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, upon hearing this, lying there in the mud, became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained, he thought. I shall be a Buddha. And the hermit Sumedha put his palms together in honoring the Buddha Dupankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisattva. And then Buddha Dupankara continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisattva Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity. And filled with joy and strength of purpose, he rose up into the air, returned to his forest retreat, where he remained working hard towards his goal. Generosity. Generosity deepening as a quality of being. Compassionate generosity as a practice. We usually think of it as the practice of offering. But in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving. A process which clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the heart qualities of generosity and compassion offer us the possibility of the purification and the transformation of greed, clinging, stinginess, hoarding, saving, and our resistance to opening to suffering. The development and the deepening of generosity and compassion offer us the possibility of the purification and transformation of the fear and attachment that is so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance.
generosity and compassion, perfectly natural aspects of our humanness, and universally recognized as two of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give, we receive the seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced, cultivated, and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago. My two-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area with a very big and bright smile on his face and thrusts a bunch of dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight, with a heartfelt gratitude. I happen to be in China on my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with a Chinese family, good friends of the person that I was traveling with. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I'd learned that in China the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of experiencing actually a fair amount of degree of attachment, I decided to give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday, though actually feeling kind of like a one-handed giver in my process of considering the possibility of doing this and then deciding to do it. Though by the time came for me to actually give her the gift, it was with both hands and an open heart. It was truly a joy at that point, though through the process of getting there, it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend of mine waited quite a number of years for all of the conditions to come together in her life to allow her to sit a three-month retreat here at IMS. And finally, they do. They all come together. All the conditions come together. But one week before the retreat begins, she calls to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of the car and gives it to me. And I hesitate. 
I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart simply opens. And it's easy to accept this purity of generosity coming from this young man. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle, surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods, beautiful clothing, and blankets close to the child in the circle. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothes and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. The child is led out of the circle to share the food and the drink with the hungry and the thirsty and the blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. I'm attempting to feed my seven-month-old granddaughter, and she picks up a piece of banana and very delightedly pushes it into my mouth. A number of summers ago, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos Española area in New Mexico. Hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, and offers of housing. So much offered so freely that at some point we were told it was time to stop giving. That the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. And of course, I'm sure you remember the incredible outpouring of compassion and generosity on every level after the September 11th tragedy and in response to the tsunami and the hurricanes here in our southern states. The incredible outpouring of compassionate generosity offered in so many ways, people to people. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decide that you want to sit the three-month retreat. And all of the conditions come together, and you give it to yourself, and you receive this great gift. And maybe during this retreat, one day you're moving ever so slowly. And you don't feel pushed. You don't feel hurried. No one's pushing behind to speed you up. Maybe you receive care packages from home. And you share the contents with other yogis. 
For just a moment, imagine yourself standing outside your house each morning, wherever it is that you live, holding a bowl of food, a line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or your father or older sister, older brother, and seeing this ritual, this offering, each and every morning of your life, taking in the power of the generous and compassionate heart, so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness quite apparent in this purity of giving, the benefits of generosity easily learned each day. And this is from the Buddha. Just as a hundred-peaked, lightning-garlanded, thundering cloud raining upon the fertile earth fills the plateaus and gullies, even so a person of conviction and learning Wise, having stored up provisions, gives to those in need, delighting in giving. That is his or her thunder, like a raining clouds. That shower of merit abundant rains back on the one who gives. And as you may have heard at other, in other uh, Dharma talks, as the Buddha said, if you know what I know, or if you knew what I knew about generosity, you wouldn't let a meal go by without sharing it. The Buddha and his monks and nuns lived, all lived in the same simple way. Each day they made alms rounds for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And he said, you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. So this practice of the heart the practice of giving and receiving. Most of us in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. We don't have the monastic training of the begging bowl. We don't have it easily available to us in this country, which is in part a process of an ongoing cultivation of gratitude and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of receiving what is offered in support of the monastic way of life. Nor do we in our culture engage from the other side in offering food each day, offering food to those 
who depend on it for their sustenance, cultivating the wholesome, open, connected, light and joyous heart of generosity. Rather, our culture encourages us to yearn for, to acquire, to accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material or otherwise. Cling to the accumulations of material goods, ideas, opinions, and the views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves both outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations. To feel, to think, and to project that this is who we are. In the light of this pervasive and quite sticky conditioning, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. This is a poem by a woman named Naomi Shihab Nye, and it was written in 1978 in Colombia. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers, eating maize and chicken, will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he, too, was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is I you've been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. We don't really have anything inculcated in our culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential emptiness of all accumulations, material and otherwise. 
And I think as a culture, there's a deep, actually quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of compassion. It's a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As our practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the heart, the mind, begin to touch, to know more and more deeply the undependability, the unsureness, the ephemerality, the changing nature, the impermanence of all things in this world. What we think is ours today may be taken away tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. Even in this retreat, my chair in the meditation hall, my cushion, my seat in the dining room. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a very powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth, the inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness. An inner wealth of generosity is, a power, is powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and confusion that's generated through the conditioning, the training of accumulating, and then fixing on our accumulations. Generosity, in in turn, is the natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to anyways. Our inner wealth of compassionate generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted, a gift that can forever be given. It's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so from this perspective, the Buddha tells us that the greatest gift is the the act of giving itself. Traditionally, in the teachings of the Buddha, there are three kinds of generosity that are spoken of. There's what is sometimes called beggarly generosity, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, uh, still holding on to what we give. It's still mine. It's how I first uh, started to give my young Chinese friend my bracelet. In this kind of giving, we give the least of what we have. And afterwards, we might even 
wonder if we should have given it all. The second kind of giving is called friendly giving. We give open-handedly, with both hands. We take what we've given and we share it. Because it seems, because it feels appropriate. It's a clear giving. And then there's what's called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if nothing remains for ourselves. We give the best instinctively. We give it graciously. We, in fact, know ourselves to be only temporary caretakers of whatever has been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. In this, there's no giving. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life, the heart of generosity, the wisdom of compassionate generosity. A wonderful metaphor for this is the moon shining in the sky while its image is reflected in every drop of water on this earth. The moon doesn't demand, if you open to me, I'll do you a favor and shine on you. The moon just shines. So the point is not to want to benefit anyone or to make them happy. And in fact, there's no audience involved, no one to impress, to please, to show. There's no me, no you, no them. It's a matter of an open gift, complete generosity, without the relative notions of giving and receiving. There's nothing to be held onto in this knowing of the natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity and compassion quite naturally blossom. And this is a, some words of Desmond Tutu from South Africa. Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours and we can only be human together. And maybe, needless to say, we don't always live with this purity and completeness of generosity and compassion described in the moon metaphor. That's why we're here, or at least part of why we're here, one of the reasons that we practice. 
It's important to remember in our practice, both in vipassana practice and in the cultivation of generosity, which is really the ground of metta and compassion. It's important to remember to be very honest with ourselves, truly honoring and respecting our capacity of heart, of mind, at any given point along the way, and not pretending anything to ourself or to others by, for instance, imitating or acting out of some idealized image that we have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's important to know and to honor and respect our limits along the way and really come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, acting with unconditional love and compassion, when in fact we're acting out of maybe fear of loss or maybe fear of disapproval or fear of some kind of a reprisal. Or we might give from a place of trying to avoid dealing directly with someone or a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear, perpetuates delusion, strengthening the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection perpetuating the suffering in ourself and others. And we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency. Rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and no self or emptiness, that the qualities of generosity and compassion very naturally spring from. It may be that you have a strong inner sense at times of need, maybe not feeling whole, not feeling ontologically whole, meaning not intuitively feeling a simple okayness about being here, a simple okayness about being alive in this life, just because here we are, just because we are alive in this life. Without this simple sense of okayness, we may experience some degree of an undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness a feeling of an inner lack or a sense of not-enoughness. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness, of abundance, this must be respected. Otherwise, giving and caring are often done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, from the conditioned feeling of lack, of not-enoughness. There may be misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity, the truth of caring and compassion. 
we may give ourself away or lose ourself in an unhealthy way in what seems like general support or generous support but which may actually be unskillful giving unskillful support of others and when this happens we actually feel less whole more depleted weaker which can often lead to a lack of awareness of or ignorance of the real needs of others in any given situation, or a lack of awareness, ignorance of our own needs. It's important to understand, to respect, and to honor in ourself and in others that the wisdom of a deep and true generosity and compassion grows and matures gradually. And also to know and to remember that our limits, our edges, keep changing. They keep moving out. They keep expanding throughout our practice. In relation to this, on the scale of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. He calls it on success to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social situation, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. It's our inalienable right to feel whole, to feel connected, to feel ontologically okay. That simple, direct okayness in being here, being here alive on the planet, simply just because we are here. It's our inalienable right to know this, to know that this is enough. This is just enough. No less, no more. Just like a tree, a deer, another human being, a butterfly, a grass, a grass, grass, (laughs) a rainbow, The inclination to feel and deeply know the wholeness that's naturally inherent in the relative level of life, which includes the interconnectedness of all things, and the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this is a perfectly natural inclination. 
the inclination to touch the freedom that's naturally inherent in understanding the not-self, the emptiness nature of all things, is a perfectly natural inclination. Both of these deeply intuitive natural inclinations are for many of us, I think, the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. There's a practice that comes from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, a very basic practice for miserly, extremely stingy people, people who have trouble giving even to themselves. So the practice is this. It's to take something very ordinary, something one might think of as not particularly valuable, maybe like a potato or a turnip, (laughs) and hold it in one hand, and then pass it to the other hand. And then back and forth, from one hand to the other, until it gets easy. No embarrassment, no feeling stupid, just easy. And then there are the higher practices. If one is motivated, inclined to continue the practice of generosity and compassion. One moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go, letting go of, relinquishing, offering everything, all of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits, preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And he even spoke of relinquishing the secret holdings. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. At one point, I did this practice. But instead of precious jewels, I used rice, which actually felt very appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here, without all of the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what is given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that this is just enough, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with gratitude, appreciation, and humility. We're learning to apply the unconditional acceptance of metta and the wise attention of mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, 
any sensation that moves through our body, any task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way through to its death. Like the Bodhisattva Sumedha, who with such great dedication and open-heartedness practiced and learned, we too are learning to receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is the path, this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. We, too, are learning that this very life is our path to liberation and that our liberation is intimately and profoundly connected to the development of a deep generosity and compassion of heart. We're learning that our liberation is intimately and profoundly connected to the wish for the liberation of all beings. Someone once asked Gandhi, uh, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity and compassion are twofold. We give to help and to free others. We give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of compassionate generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us as we begin to know it and live it quite naturally as who we are. About 25 years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. In those years, he would come once or twice to, twice a year to the area in Michigan where I lived to teach us. One particular year, I invited him to come and stay at my house, a small, very old five-room log house in the Michigan woods. In fact, the same house that burned down that I spoke about in a previous Dharma talk. And at that time, just one of my sons and myself were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came. An old, well-used, smallish car pulled up into the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. And he's quite a big man six feet, three or four inches tall, and quite big-boned. And he looked even bigger in his boots and his tall cowboy hat. And then it was like one of those cars in the circus, (laughs) when a car pulls up into the center ring and the doors open and people just keep coming, pouring out of the car. And you're amazed at how many people can fit into such a small car. As we watched, seven people emerged from this little car, all of Wallace's helpers and some members of his family. 
And it turned out that there were, after he arrived and others, that there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. And I thought, how will we all live and sleep in our tiny house? Well, the space seemed to expand. People were sleeping all over the place. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet and listen to Wallace as he talked and shared his earth wisdom. At night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the Ecology Center, usually until about 12.30 a.m. And then it was time for a big dinner. There weren't any meals taken through the afternoon or the evening prior to the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences, many of my habits, how I use the various spaces of my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, my food preferences, and various other preferences. Wallace and one of the members of his family smoked cigarettes quite continuously. People slept all over the house. The day began fairly late in the morning, and because of the late-night sweat lodge ceremonies, 1 a.m., as I mentioned, was dinner time. And each afternoon the house was filled with people, sometimes 15 or 20 people, coming by to listen to Wallace as he shared teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats and there were dishes and bowls of food at the door or left on the kitchen counter. Often a friend and I would be cooking something up at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. There was always plenty of food and always enough space. The last night, Wallace and his friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony for my son and I in our living room. And so we all sat together in a circle. Each one of us was asked to share some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then they gave my son and I some beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for our sharing of our space, time, and the energy. And then Wallace spoke. He said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough, abundance. If one shares one's space and time and energy, he said, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, It's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. When everyone left the next morning, in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all getting back into the old car, kind of like a movie playing backwards. And then the two of us walked back into the house and stood there amazed. The great expanse of our house 
holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy of those days, when we walked back inside after everyone left, it seemed as though our house had shrunk. And yet, somehow internally, we both felt expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. Through our practice, as you've all been so diligently engaged in during these past weeks, a greatness of heart grows. It grows and flows within us as naturally as the rivers flow in this world. As our heart opens and wisdom deepens and matures, there's an easing of the constrictive thoughts, feelings, and actions of self-centeredness and an ease, a joy, and a peace shows up as our experience in this life more and more often. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with a quote from a man named Russell Swikart, who was an astronaut. This comes from a book called Home Planet, which is a quotes and photographs from various astronauts from their experience, international group of astronauts. And this is from Russell Swikart. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes, because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there, And there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before, and that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others cannot have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for man. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there. And they are like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end. And that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you are out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront, and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet, and you and all those other forms of life on that planet, because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious.
And let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.